Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message, which is brought to you by Pastor Todd Roberts. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. All right. Now, today we have a very special guest speaker. Uh, thanks to the wonders of modern technology, Kurt Mailer is joining us live this morning from Houston, Texas. And if you do the math, you'll realize that it's about 5 a.m. right now in Texas. So if you're struggling with the time change this morning, know that Kurt wins the superhero medal for early rising today. Thank you, Kurt, for uh, sacrificially loving us by getting up uh, at a ridiculously early hour. Um, But Lauren and I have known Kurt for more than 20 years. And uh, in fact, as I alluded to last week, we partially owe the fact that, that we're a couple to Kurt because when Lauren and I first started dating, we both felt called to the nations to serve God as missionaries. But, but, but the places that we felt called to were dramatically different. In fact, the places that we were thinking we were going to go to were on different continents, and we weren't sure what to do about that. So, so I, I was eating lunch with Kurt one day, and I was explaining our dilemma, and I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. Uh, Lauren and I feel called to different nations. And Kurt just said, hmm well, why don't you guys set aside which nation, the, the the nation question for right now, and just figure out if you like each other. And I thought that sounded like really good advice. So we set aside our conversation about where we were called to go and, and serve and uh, just spent the next six months getting to know one another. And we figured out we did, in fact, like each other very much. And we got engaged six months later. And we've now been married for 18 years. And we are serving God in a nation that neither of us foresaw uh, way back then. So uh, we do owe our marriage in part to Kurt's wise advice. Now, Kurt, uh, he spent the better part of the last 20, 25 years serving God in Central Asia and in the Middle East. He's an outstanding author and poet and communicator, and some of his sermons have really shaped me over the years. So it's a real privilege to welcome Kurt this morning. But first, before we hear from Kurt, Carol Ragg is going to read the scripture passage for today. Take it away, Carol. Good morning, church. I'm Carol Ragg, and I'm part of the Antioch community and serve in the kids' ministry. So the scripture for today is from Gospel Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 to 24. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and he will return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the centre of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! 
Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heaven. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with 12 of disciples. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in the full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season to, for fruit. Then, she, then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began, and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables for, of the money chargers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to the mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you received it, it will be yours. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Carol. That was good. This scripture is full of scandals. I mean, let alone the fact that he cursed a tree that done nothing wrong. I mean, I'm already a little bit troubled by what's going on here. Um, and I'm already suspicious that it's intentional. And there are many things going on in this scripture that are deliberately throwing a wrench in the machinery, um, scandalizing our expectations so that we can discover whether we're hungry or we're hardened. Um, I am so convinced that what is happening here is exactly that. Uh, we start off with wondering about, is it why a donkey? Uh, Matthew says it's a donkey and a cult. This guy says it's a, a cult. What is it? A fig tree, what's going on? Um, later on, he's cleansing the temple. He's turning over coin, you know, coin changers uh, systems and everything. He is reshaping our hope. And I want to just start off with that, that statement as a lens through which to look at this. And really the takeaway question you're going to have today is to ask 
our Heavenly Father, where are my expectations being scandalized? And where, where are my hopes not panning out? Therefore, Lord, reshape my hope. That's the whole point of scandal. That's the whole point of, of um, things not turning out the way we expected. And there are hours and hours worth of things to explore in these scriptures. And I'm just going to touch on a few of them because um, I'd like to make time for stories um, because I think those bring this you know, up to the 21st century. But I'm just gonna share my screen here and we're gonna walk through the scriptures one more time. Um, I've pulled together some artwork and some photographs so that you won't have to be watching me. So I'm gonna attempt here. All right, all right. Well, that's the magnificent horse of, uh, of a great artist, but that's not what we want. <laughs> all right, here we go. That's Paul falling off the source. Here we go, all right, let's see. Uh, all right, you're so kind to put up with the technology awkwardness. Here we go, okay. So I wanna just look at the, at the whole bird's eye view of what's happening here for a moment. Don't worry, we're not gonna go through every one of these points. But what we've just read is packed with significance. It's why every gospel writer spends most of their time writing about the final week of Jesus's life. But Jesus has just come from Jericho where he's healed someone, uh, he's restored Zacchaeus, and he's in these two towns whose names mean house of dates and house of figs. There's this big celebration going on because Lazarus has been raised from the dead. So people are coming from Jerusalem and filling up this town because everyone wants to see what a man who was raised from the dead looks like. Everybody knows this was, was verified. And so everybody wants to be there. And, um, and then that's where Jesus says, hey, there's a village across from us. And I'm going to give you a passcode here. And they're going to give you uh, a donkey. A, a young a young donkey that no one has ever ridden on. Uh, Matthew adds that there's a cult with it, and this fulfills a prophecy. So we've got this going on, and now Jesus is on the donkey, and um, he's he's basically up on a ridge. These two these two two villages are up on a ridge, and he's descending and seeing Jerusalem, and we see these things that happen, where people are celebrating, and um, but then in then he gets to Jerusalem. It's too late um, in the day to do anything, uh, showing that he has a sense of timing here. He's not just angry and lashing out. He's upset, but he knows the timing's wrong. And this is where this fig tree story fits in in the Gospel of Mark. Then having cursed the fig tree, he cleanses the temple. The lame and the blind come to him there, which is, again, that's ceremonially unclean. Now you've got lame and blind people in the temple getting healed. They're not ceremonially unclean anymore. Little kids are having a blast and non-Jews are saying, hey, we want to talk to Jesus. Again, it's the signal that this is going to be for all nations. And then on the back side of that, the disciples see the fig tree and say, what in the world? And he goes right into this exhortation, which is for us, have faith in God. And, um, and then the rest of the passion kind of unrolls. So I just wanna give this to you, you'll have it. Um, you can ask for the link to this slideshow, I'm glad to send it to you. But I wanna give you a little bit of understanding on why everyone's excited about Jesus 
showing up here. He's a miracle worker. It's obvious that he's a prophet of God. It's obvious that he's from God. Um, but what's happened here leading up to Jerusalem's point in time with Jesus is there's already been centuries of struggle for identity of a nation, the, the sacred connection with God, the covenant with God. And there's this particular, there's this family uh, a father and brothers known as the Maccabees, who 160 or so years prior to Jesus had risen up, kicked out the Greek em uh, imperial rulers, the kings, and, and, and even resisting the culture of the Greeks, uh, entered Jerusalem, cleansed the temple, and there's, there's this place in 1st Maccabees, that's, uh, that's uh, part of the history here, where it literally says they entered, here, let me get my screen where I can see it, they entered it with praise and palm, palm branches, with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed. So people have in mind this, okay, it's coming again. Now it's the Romans, not the Greeks, um, but we're going to see this happen. So there's a great expectation that they're living in messianic history and that it's going to be a 2.0 of things they've seen before. Let's see if I can uh, figure out how to do it. Thank you. Okay. But what you have here is Jesus on a donkey. This is uh, uh, Flandrin's portrayal of that. It's so completely opposite. So here you've got the first flip of expectations. Wait a minute. This isn't Judas Maccabeus on a donkey with a sword. This is, he's, he's riding a, a humble animal. I mean, there's great things to talk about as far as, uh, his connection with creation, but we can't even go there about this animal that had never been written on uh, submitting to him. But the point is already he's communicating, hey, your expectations are not my expectations. I'm reshaping your hope. And I have centuries of prophecy to back it up as we see here in the quote from Zechariah on the screen. And uh, this is from James Tussaud. Uh, it's it, it's kind of hard to see this picture, but you can kind of see them winding down the hill, and um, people are chanting Psalm 118, which is what you chanted uh, uh, at a feast in the in the fall in the in the Hebrew calendar. But you also chanted this psalm on the night of Passover. So this this is something you know. It's kind of like that uh, the song Amazing Grace. If I just sing amazing grace, your, your mind goes into the rest of at least the chorus of the song. And it's the same with what they're, what they're quoted as singing or chanting here in the scriptures. It tripwires the whole psalm, which is all about the Messiah, which is all about the restoration of the temple, which has in it uh, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This stone didn't meet our expectations, so we kicked it out, but God vindicated the stone, and the stone's name is Jesus. So you have this going on. Now, I, like I said, he's starting from these villages that overlook the city. So um, he's, he's coming upon Jerusalem, seeing the whole thing. And here's a couple of artists' renditions of that, excuse me, of that. Um, he's, um, you know, he stops and says, oh my goodness, if you could only shift your expectations, if you could only allow me to reshape your hope, you'd recognize that I'm visiting you right now. But he says, 
It's hidden from your eyes, these things that would make for peace. So he pauses. You can see in this art, art artwork by uh, Tissot, he pauses because he's he understands, oh my goodness, their expectations are so fixed on a certain script that they're not going to get it. So you see this this pastoral care of Jesus being compassionate. This this uh, artwork by Enrique Simonet, I believe I believe I'm saying it right. Um, of course, doesn't show him riding a beast of burden, but I think this is a beautiful painting showing his compassion for the city, his sorrow about, oh my goodness, if you would only allow me to reshape your hope, all the things that make for peace would be yours, but you're so set on a certain outcome that it's going to be another way. Anyway, I could spend an hour on this piece of art. There's so much going on, but let it come into your heart a little deeper that this historical event looked something like this. So here is, again, it's Tissot giving this rendition of what it looked like uh, coming in to the city. Um, the rabbis and Pharisees say, uh, calm the kids down, calm the people down. And he says, if I did that, the very stones would cry out. And he's alluding to Habakkuk, the prophet there. There's a close up here. Uh, having lived in the Middle East, um, you know, in, in the rural areas of the Middle East, um, these, these garments in this painting aren't far off, to be honest. Then you have this situation in the temple, again, where he's fulfilling the Psalms and the, and the prophets, where children are rejoicing in innocence. Of course, you know, it's, it's, it's clear for all of us that this, uh, this crowd is emotion-driven, and the same emotions that swell up their expectations to say, um, save us, Lord, save us, we pray. That's what Hosanna means. Those same people, or at least some of them, within a week are going to be saying, crucify him. He did not meet our expectations. Away with him. So it's a very poignant scene of both joy and ominous foreshadowing. I'm sorry, I have to digress here because um, this is British history. Um, if you get to know me, I love digression. So we just digressed. But I think it's so interesting to me that when General Edmund Allenby uh, took Jerusalem during World War I, going through the Jaffa Gate, which you see here underneath what's called the Tower of David, being aware of the greatness of the Christ who had passed through the gates of Jerusalem before him and being aware of the importance of the city, he said, you know what? I know the Turks surrendered to me but I'm not going to go through on a horse. I'm going to go through on foot. Uh, that was political wisdom as well, but I just thought it was awesome to uh, see something like that, as opposed to uh, this man on the right who had to have a chunk of the arch above his spiked helmet chopped out because he wanted to come through as a man of greatness. Again, there's something about shifting our expectations that opens up the grace of God end of historical digression. Way to go, Brits, for doing it right through the gate. But here we come through, here we come to the controversy. Um, again, I could spend hours on each verse. Here's the fig tree. And Mark says, Jesus is doing this on purpose. He says, the disciples heard this. Jesus is acting out a drama. He is he he speaks in parables. He's he 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 almost never 
Actually, I think the gospel writers would say he never only said, get the point. He said, get the picture. He knew that if our imagination was captured, we'd remember it better and we'd be able to adapt it to our situation. So here's a fig tree, a symbol of Israel. Israel in times of prosperity and peace. We see that in Hosea and Zechariah. Here is the fig tree, um, a place where, according to rabbinical tradition, rabbis could teach underneath. We see Nathanael, or Nathanael, um, one of the early disciples, uh, presumably meditating on the Torah underneath the fig tree. And Jesus says, hey, when you were doing that, I saw you. I was there. It, there so there's there's something about this fig tree that speaks of the law, uh, the tradition, the, the inheritance of Israel, the promises of God, the law of God. With that in mind, you have Jesus come up to this fig tree and using creation as a form of communication, he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now think about the significance of what he's saying. He's looking at this, the, this, this thing that symbolizes the law and tradition, and there's no fruit. And he says, hey, the time for that is, has come to an end. Um, now I'm going to quote a couple of church fathers here. Um, this is Augustine, or Augustine, not sure how to say it. See what terrible thing... So what terrible thing had the poor tree done simply in not bearing fruit? Could the tree be reasonably faulted for its fruitlessness? Oh, but human beings who by their own free will decide not to bear fruit, well, that is another matter. In this case, those who are under the law, which was meant to bear fruit, but they had no fruit to show for it, they had a full growth of leaves, yet they bore no fruit. Now you see what's happening here a little more deeply. This isn't a random act of violence. Um, one might even say with a, a fig tree having a, a lifespan of, I don't know, 20 to 30 years, I don't actually know how long a fig tree would live, but one might even say that this was a special fig tree picked out to communicate. And who knows that in the new creation, this fig tree has a special place. All I'm saying ultimately is this isn't random. This isn't anger. This is a drama that we're supposed to apprehend for our own lives. But I like what Cyril of Jerusalem says, because I think this uh, might hit us more deeply because most of us aren't struggling with legalistic Judaism uh, competing with our faith in Christ. It might be more primordial, our struggles of what we're hiding behind, what we're finding our identity in, what we're kind of preoccupied with, the fig leaves of our lives, so to speak. So I'll quote Cyril. Remember at the time of the sin of Adam and Eve, they clothed themselves with what? Fig leaves. That was their first act after the fall. So now Jesus is making the same figure of the fig tree, the very last of his wondrous signs. Think about that. This is his last wondrous sign before the passion. Just as he was headed toward the cross, he cursed the fig tree. Not every fig tree, but that one alone, the quote should say alone, for its symbolic significance, saying, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. In this way, the curse laid upon Adam and Eve was being reversed, for they had clothed themselves with fig leaves. I'm going to stop sharing for a moment.
Can you all hear me okay? Give me a thumbs up. All right, thank you. So in Afghanistan, um, blessing and cursing was taken very seriously. Uh, it wasn't just an invective for being angry. You know, I mean, I, I, that could happen. I remember um, in one situation, a dishwasher at a restaurant broke a plate and the owner of the restaurant said, your destiny is hell. That was obviously just some angry venting, right? He's not going to hell for breaking a plate. But on the, on the whole, in that culture, blessing and cursing was believed to have power. So if there's someone who's pleasant in our memory there in Afghanistan, someone would say, may God be with him. May God's peace be on him. But if someone was a stench in the nostrils, it would be something like, may God strike him down. You know, they think of a political leader, for example, and say, oh, so-and-so, may God strike him down. And they meant it. And uh, I remember I was in one situation where um, uh, uh, an Afghan was mocking me for praying for the sick and telling parables to children. And um, I responded by blessing him. I just said, may the Lord bless you. And he was shocked that I didn't counter his curse with a curse. And so he became aflame with, uh, I think, perplexity and insecurity. So he started hurling more curses. May God strike you down twice. I said, may God bless you twice. May God break your back. <laughs> may God's peace be upon everyone in your family. May an airplane fall from the sky and devour everything, destroy everything you have. May the Lord raise your parents off their sick beds. And so this duel of blessing and cursing is happening. And at one point, the children raised a deflector shield of, of um, may it never be, God forbid, because they, they didn't want the curses to affect me. It was that kind of reality that, um, that I lived in. And I wonder, I wonder if it's more than sentimental because things are done according to our faith, right? Just thought I'd ponder that for a moment. We don't wanna be cursing ourselves. We want to be confessing our faults and asking for redemption. We don't wanna be hiding in the fig leaves, so to speak. We don't wanna be doing the first, <laughs> the first act all over again, whether it's our job or our situation or our identity or whatever it is. We wanna come out of hiding and, you know, looking at this cursing of the fig tree, it's, it's like a reversal. It's like, hey, you don't need to do that anymore. You can come out in the open. I'm here. I'm here. I'm, I'm making a way for you. Let's go back if I can try to do that here with a little bit of finesse. All right, here we go. So now he's cleansing the temple. And um, this is, again, this is just a great way to kind of picture it. Um, and um, you know, he's fulfilling these scriptures, which basically says, hey, your greed and your thievery of one another is blocking the nation's access to me. So he has the nations in mind. He says, hey, I wanna, I wanna clear the way for you to have access to me. No time to talk about that, but he's picking up on some cleansings of the temple that had happened before. But um, let me just leave here for a second here. All right. But I just wanted to kind of look at that for a moment and then just ponder again, get it, getting it back to you. Where have your expectations been scandalized? Where is a, a thing you're hoping for in a person, an institution, yourself, your God? Where is it not working out? And in that crisis, what's being revealed? Are you hungry 
to labor with the spirit and the scriptures to figure out what's really going on? Or are you hardened to that expectation either coming to pass or not? And in the process, rejecting the only one who can reverse the curse. He's reshaping your hope. He's taking the script you have and saying, hey, this script is the surface. I'm going to take it away. I'm going to take away the things that block our connection with one another so that your hope can be reshaped and fulfilled. And fulfilled. I'm going to look at my notes here for a second. Yeah. Think about that for a second. So I don't have um, kind of a smooth way to transition here, but I, I, I wanted to give some living examples of where expectations switched uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, the first one is, uh, oh, well, you know what? Again, this is a digression moment. Again, this is, uh, this is an Irish uh, woman named Irene Webster Smith. And um, I bring this up as something to cite because when Jesus says this, this grand scandalous statement, if you believe this mountain will be moved, it will be moved. Okay, maybe you can chalk that up to Middle Eastern hyperbole, poetic license. The church fathers said for sure he meant anything that's spiritually beneficial, no matter how huge the, the ask, he's going to give it to you. But um, that's what the church fathers concluded. I think, anyway, I think the one I'm thinking of is Theodosian. But um, this, this um, biography of a woman who labored in Japan for 34 years um, um, has this very interesting account of one of the 87 girls she had re rescued from um, what amounted to human trafficking in the day, um, who was a, had faith in Christ and saw uh, kind of a, this saw this scripture and there was a a mountain or at least a large ridge between their orphanage and the sea and this little girl began to pray that it would be removed so that she could see the sunset and so that the sun would shine uh, for more hours in the day on their orphanage true story you can look it up in this book called sensei um you know, uh, Irene Webster Smith and the others at this orphanage tried to encourage her that, you know, that scripture was more just for spiritual things, not necessarily literal mountains. But um, surprise, to the surprise of everyone, one day uh, bulldozers showed up from the Japanese government and began moving this ridge. Again, I don't know literally how big it was, but it was big enough to block the sunset and create uh, shade for several hours um, over this orphanage, uh, which would make it colder in the winter. These bulldozers began removing this mountain or ridge, whatever it was. And when Irene Webster Smith asked the, um, this government uh, construction team what was going on, they said, well, we're building a highway and, um, and we, we thought about tunneling through, but we decided in the end, it was better to just simply remove it. And then we can take this earth to uh, do um, landfill and coastal extension projects other places. So there you go, a literal example of a literal mountain being moved. Uh, there's so much more I could say about this lady. Um, goodness gracious, you'll just have to read the slide there. Okay, end of digression, back to our sermon. So this is the cornerstone 
of the Kabul Community Christian Church. It was established in 1970. Um, it was about the same time a mosque was built in Washington, D.C., and uh, the president at the time, um, recognizing that at this time during the Cold War, there were thousands of foreign Christians in Afghanistan, uh, confided in King Zahir Shah and said, hey, uh, we just opened up a mosque in Washington, D.C. Why don't you permit the Christians to build a church building in uh, Kabul that they might worship at? And so this is the cornerstone of this building. Um, so I'm going to go back to stopping to share here. So they build this building. It's a bright blue A-frame roof, uh, very different architecture than the rest of the city. It's got a beautiful mosaic. Uh, they've got headsets so that the international uh, kind of community there can have translations of the sermon. I knew the pastor, his name was Jay Christie Wilson. Um, in the government of Afghanistan, uh, an element of the government looked at this and said, we don't like this building. We don't like a public Christian presence. Um, and um, at the same time, the Christians meeting in this building were full of expectations because um, Christianity had existed in Afghanistan clear back to the time of the Apostle Thomas, but in more the more recent century had gone into a dormant almost non-existent state. So there was this great expectation that this church building was the sign of a new season of uh, faith in Christ. And there were scattered Afghan believers here and there, um, uh, not meeting in this building, of course, but there were, there, were, there were people open, including people in the government open, reading the scriptures. So there was great expectation that this church building symbolized the opening up of a whole country for the gospel in modern times. But as I said, there was an element of the government that didn't like this building, the symbolism of it, the, the high profile nature of it. You could see it as you landed in the city, this bright blue metal roof A-frame thing. And um, so a, um, uh, one of the leaders of the government collaborating with the mayor said, you know what, if we demolish this building, we will please two groups of people. We'll please the communists who think this stuff is the opiate of the masses, and that'll help build our power base. And we'll please the Islamic traditionalists who see this as basically heresy and, um, and a distraction to the traditions of Islam. And so with, we'll kill one bird with uh, two birds with one stone by demolishing this. And so they initiated coordinating, different government elements coordinating with the mayor initiated, here's a couple photographs, if I can do this again. So this is after they've demolished the wall. So it took several months to demolish this large building. And um, of course, the foreign community is, is appealing to different governments. Governments are appealing to the, the government of Afghanistan. Please don't do this. Human rights, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mutuality, et cetera, et cetera. But nobody's listening. Here's the last day. I mean, at one point, uh, inter uh, the international community had a ring of children holding hands around the building, you know, just as a, a way to hopefully disarm uh, the government elements that were hostile, but to, to no avail. Here it is, 
that uh, Russian built bulldozers are finishing the demolition. I remember talking to eyewitnesses. The very last thing that happened was they didn't demolish the telephone because the telephone belonged to the telecommunications comp uh, ministry of the government and they didn't want to get in trouble with them. So they carefully dismantled the telephone system and um, gave it to the board of advisors of the church. So all, uh, they even dug up the floor because they had heard of this thing called the underground church of Afghanistan, and they thought it was literally under the ground. Now, a very interesting thing happened during this several months. Uh, a German businessman went to the mayor of Kabul and said, this won't bid well for your country. This, this is sacred space. And um, I, I just feel from the Lord, I need to tell you that um, the Lord is a living Lord, and um, and this won't this this won't bid well for your country. I just have a sense of ominous for, foreboding about what's happening here, um, and the mayor overrode him. But it is his, it, it it did happen this way that the very day they finished demolishing the church building, the king was overthrown in a coup by Muhammad Daud Khan that very night, like something out of the Bible, right? And, and that generation of Afghans coined a saying. They said, God has judged our country. And the reason he's judged our country is because we have touched the, the building of the prophet Jesus. Interesting, huh? You and I might have trouble with such extremity of interpreting signs, but Afghans had no trouble connecting dots. But you see, it went both ways here. The, 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 the international Christian community was crushed. Their expectations were crushed. And uh, this government that overthrew the king, they lasted uh, four and a half years, and then they fell to a communist coup, which fell to another coup, which fell into a civil war, which went to the Taliban, which went to today. Those expectations were crushed. But I can tell you that when Karen and I lived in that country, we talked more about Christ than we ever did in the U.S. And that um, though the nation ended up looking like this, this is the king's palace during the Civil War. And though the main boulevard of the city looked like something from a blitzkrieg or something, you know, the number of believers went from 400 to 4,000. And even Taliban sought prayer from me. I mean, it happened to me, so I know it's true. On the level of human openness, on the level of the heart, as everybody went through the pain, foreigners and Afghans included, of a reshaping of hope, the hope they found was in Christ Jesus through the weakness of ourselves. I'm going to skip that story. Okay, so this is a city we lived in called Faizabad. And this city is up in the part of Afghanistan where Marco Polo passed through on his way to China. Um, it's a beautiful place. Um, you know, it's interesting to me how um, Afghans here, they, they understood signs. They understood, they would have understood like when they read about the curse to the withered fig tree, they have no problem with that. <laughs> they, they have no problem with God speaking through created things. Uh, I see this metal, metal roof here on this building uh, in the front of this picture, you see it too. Reminds me of a story um, of another building, not this one, but another two-story building in this city with a metal roof where a corrupt government official 
uh, was working and his office was on the second floor. You know, his large office was on the second floor of a building uh, not unlike this one you see with the metal roof somewhere else in town. And he was so corrupt that the Afghan police decided to launch a sting operation to catch him red-handed. So they um, collaborated with some government workers who agreed to pose and set up, you know, set up a situation where he would be in a certain house. And, um, and so this corrupt official goes to the house to um, implement the crime. Uh, again, again, all this is a sting. And um, while this is happening and the police are watching and listening uh, for this uh, sting to work out, a wind begins to blow through the city. I was there when this happened. A wind blew through the city. And uh, literally as the police stormed the building to catch this corrupt official in the act of crime, uh, the wind like a can opener tore off uh, the portion of the metal roof above this man's office. And uh, every Afghan in the city knew that justice had been done. They saw the sign and they had no problem with it. But I wanna share this last story here of a sign that perhaps will strike more to home. And my, my point here is two things. One, to build your faith, have faith in God. And second, that if you work with the shattering of your expectations, the shifting of your ex of, of, of outcomes where now you're in a crisis of hope, what do I hope for? Um, the Lord will reshape your hope into a life-giving outcome. Here's a digression. Here's what we looked back looked like way back when. We're significantly older now, but <clears throat> this is how we dressed and uh, we lived among Afghans. Um, spoke their language. Lots to talk about that I can't, there's not time for, but this is just giving you a context of what we looked like. So I want to finish with this story. Okay, this is an illiterate woman named Zoe. And um, so I want you to see her picture here. She's she's actually dying of pancreatic cancer in this, in this picture. So this picture is taken in that zone of, uh, of early uh, 2005. And I wanna show you where she lives, or lived rather. It's, it's a, a valley called the Zardeu Valley. Uh, this man incidentally is a mullah, which would be a religious leader. He's not the mullah I'm about to talk about in the story, but um, he's he actually was reading the New, Te New Testament um, on his own when I met him. Again, you, you never judge the surface, brothers and sisters. The Lord is... <laughs> in the business of reshaping hope quietly and, and uh, inexorably. But I wanted to give you these pictures before I tell the story back uh, when I look at you face to face. Here's, I'm calling her Zoe by alias, not her real name. And this is the valley where she lived, uh, a valley primarily of illiterate villagers, some educated, but primarily just people who grow barley and grain, some grow opium, uh, but mostly people who are traditional farmers, devout in the traditions of Islam, uh, I had, I had wonderful friends in this valley. Let me go back here. All right. So Zoe hears about Jesus. She's illiterate. Her husband is literate. And while he was being educated in the Eastern Bloc in the days of the Cold War, he came upon, uh, someone gave him a New Testament. He began reading it. Um, when we met her, she learned about Jesus through, um, 
through that and through uh, people like my wife. And she put her trust in Jesus. Um, and she's struggling with this sickness. And um, at one point, she's sitting in a room while her female relatives attend to her. And she has, she begins to describe to this room of women uh, a vision of Jesus. I suppose you call it an open vision. She's sitting there with her eyes open and she's saying, I see him. He's standing before me. They're asking her, what does he look like? So she's putting her faith in the Lord. She's saying things that are very unorthodox for the tradition of her valley. She's saying, Jesus died for my sins. I belong to him only. And um, uh, at one point, she has a video of the a dramatization of the Gospel of Luke, and she's watching it to get encouraged in her sickness. And it's being passed around. And at one point, uh, other people are kind of banging on doors saying, hey, where's that video that Zoe's watching? She's getting encouraged. We want to get encouraged too. But the fact remains that she's dying. She's, she's pleading with, with Jesus to heal her. We, of course, are praying and fasting for her to be healed. We're thinking, this is the breakthrough moment. This work of power, a whole valley will see it. Then comes... Uh, uh, someone who's holding up the Islamic traditions. And again, for the record, I love Muslims. I've lived years of my life where I'm the tiny minority among people who are devout in those traditions. Um, so just for the record, I, I, I love Muslims, but I'm talking about here a conflict of expectations and tradition. So she's dying. Um, she's in her home village by this point. I had taken her to some German sur surgeons and they had done what they could, but which was very little, more palliative. And this Islamic leader comes and he has a brass bowl. And this brass bowl has all the 99 names of God on it, all the 99 names of Allah, of Khuda, as they would say in, in Dari. And in it, there is water from the well of Zamzam, which is a sacred spring in Mecca, the holiest site in Islam. And he says, drink this holy water from this brass bowl with the 99 names and you will be healed. Not only does she refuse to drink it, saying, I belong to Christ alone, the 100th name, so to speak, but these amulets, these good luck charms that are more folk tradition, kind of, you know, hedge your bets, extra power boosters. I take them off. I'm putting my faith in him alone. This was scandalous. This isn't on the script. Zoe, you're supposed to drink the water. And even if you don't get healed, at least you've reinforced the narrative of the way things are so that we feel safe because when things are predictable, we feel safe. She doesn't drink it. I was with her as her brother was feeding her her last meal, you know, I think milk, like yogurt and water. It's a kind of situation where you realize, you know, that phrase death by natural causes, um, it's a funny phrase. I, I've concluded that death is the most unnatural thing for a person. I, I, I see how uh, it was not in the heart of the creator. He didn't design us to die. But died nonetheless, she did. And um, in that culture with no, um, no embalming and in the traditions of the, that particular faith expression, they immediately wash the body, wrap the body, um, just like they would would have the body of Christ. Um, and immediately, you know, there's wailing and lamenting. Um, 
um, and there's kind of a preparation for burial. Now you saw that valley and it's just a patchwork of barley and wheat and, and other crops uh, separated by these low stone walls. And in, in some of these fields you'll have goats, others you'll have sheep. And, uh, and in one in particular, there was a cemetery, some tall uh, mulberry trees there, I think, maybe some sycamore trees, if I'm remembering right. And so there's lamentation, there's weeping, uh, you know, the women are chanting, oh, oh, auntie, oh, auntie, you've left us uh, alone in a field. Where have you gone? There, there's, there, there, these, these spontaneous poems are coming to mind as they're pouring out their sorrow that she's left. And they put her on a, a bier, I think that's what you call it, B-I-E-R, this kind of pallet thing, and cover it with a, a, a mantle. And they're carrying her in this funeral procession out to the cemetery. My wife's there, I'm there. She's with the women, I'm with the men. Again, I'm friends with these families. I, uh, this family, they're, they're gracious to let me be there. Um, and I, 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 I initiate with the brother of Zoe and I say, hey, um, one of the commandments I'm giving as, given as a follower of Jesus is to pray for the sick and raise the dead. That's a command. And so um, I'm still learning what it means to belong to Jesus, but I love Zoe and I know you love her too. Could I pray for her to be raised from the dead? And uh, it was a horribly vulnerable moment. Here I am an outsider. The word foreigner in Afghan language is outsider. You know, there's no, you know, no, um, no skirting the issue. You don't belong here, you know. But as an outsider, they still loved me and they said, all right. And so they stopped the funeral procession halfway to the cemetery. They let me uh, touch the, 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 the mantle there. Um, I just put my hand on it and I said, Lord, please raise her from the dead. This is exactly what is needed here. And um, they, you know how silence seems longer than it really is. Here's this village full of mourners and they let the silence go on remarkably uh, for a remarkably long time. But eventually the brother, he taps me on the hand. And he says, all right, let, let's go. So gracious, these Afghans were so hospitable to let an outsider with faith in Christ do that in the middle of their mourning. Especially after this woman had controversialized them by saying, I belong to Jesus Christ. Uh, that's where my faith is, not in the script that was handed me. So we get to the cemetery. They've already dug the grave. They lower the body in the grave, immediately bury her. The men go to one side of this small cemetery, the women to another, but I as the outsider, I'm kind of on this other corner, kind of a third corner, and standing on the dirt of the grave of Zoe, um, a mullah begins to preach, not the one I showed you, another one. And his sermon has nothing to do with the woman. His sermon has everything to do with hellfire. He says, woe to you if you depart from the traditions. I suppose it's indirectly about the woman, but he, he's not mentioning her by name. But woe to you if you uh, depart the traditions. Your destiny is hellfire. We, we have an inherited way, and that way is the straight way. And if you leave the straight way, you are doomed. You are damned. And so he's preaching um, not faith in God, but faith in tradition. And um, as he's preaching, a sheep begins to move up behind him. And even like just now, if I were on Zoom right now and my cat, I have the best cat ever, 
If my cat got up here and walked across, you wouldn't hear a thing I'm saying. All you'd see is the tail and you'd go, I think he's calico. You, you wouldn't even be able to control yourself. I guarantee it. You'd be like, I think it's a calico. You, 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 I would be preaching my best sermon and you would not remember a thing because distraction is always more interesting than main content. Well, that's what's happening. He's preaching and preaching and this sheep comes up behind him and gives birth to a lamb. The lamb drops out, and I can't do it with my voice here, but newborn lambs cry out, and they're, they're, you know, they're wet, they're slimy, they're, they're spindly-legged, and the, the you, the sheep, E-W-E, that you, not you, but the you, you know what I mean, begins to lick the lamb and, you know, um, coax it to stand and look for her milk, crying out, bleating like a sheep would. And the mullah sees and you know, wraps up his sermon and he walks off. And here's this sheep and the lamb. Do you know what the Afghan men at that cemetery did after the service was over? I was just sitting there in the, in the corner of the cemetery. They came over, sat down in front of me and said, tell us what will happen on the day all are raised from the dead. You see what happened? Expectations were shattered, both mine and theirs. God sent a sign. It revealed who was hungry and who was hardened. I think in that story, you can tell who was hungry and who was hardened. In the same way that when Christ cursed that fig tree, cleansed the temple and said, here I am, who do you say that I am? Everybody self-selected, whether they were hungry or hardened. And I know all of you are in that place and you want to be numbered among the hungry, don't you? Let's let the Lord work with our scandalized expectations and let's let the Lord make us hungrier than we are. I know for me in certain areas, it takes years for the hardness to become hunger when my expectations haven't worked out. It's a process. I'm so glad that Jesus revealed God as Father. Come and learn of me. He expects a learning curve. That it won't be immediate for a lot of our situations. But ultimately, there's a reshaping of our hope. And that's the discussion question I'm going to leave you with. Now, I know I've been all over the place in this sermon. I exegeted some of the historical context of the scripture and then threw you in the deep end with Afghan stories of <laughs> signs of judgment and signs of life. But if you can get past anything I might have said that was distracting, I really think this is the point. How is the Lord reshaping your hope in frustrated expectations? What sign is he giving? that's cueing you in, cluing you in. Hey, you're hungrier than you realize. Stay with me here. Work with my spirit. Search my scriptures. I will give you an aha moment. And I will bring a life-giving, multiplying thing out of this, even though your expectations may not come to pass. This is helpful. I hope this helps you. I've lost track of time, so please forgive me if I've um, upstaged tea.
um, or whatever it is is next. But let's go to the discussion questions. Uh, Ian, if you could shift it here. Thank you so much for listening. You're very gracious listeners to me. And I, I desire to be in three dimensions with you sometime. I, I earnestly desire that to be uh, with you and for you to meet my family as well. So grace and peace to you. I hope this was an equipping for your hearts and your hope. Amen. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.